do you let me in? Oh, don't tidy up. It's oh, only me. Oh, God, what a day. Well, let me tie these bags. Hello, love. Come on in, away from the <laughs> rain. Uh. I have coffee. Mm -hmm. Thank you for How doing that. How are you? Oh, I'm stuck. In no, this happens from time to time when I'm messing I'm... around with the thingies. Frida's, Frida's got me. Where should we set up? Where do you want to do um, it? Here's a coffee. Oh, thank you. No, which one's? That's yours. Soy. Yes, soy. Ready to get your writing chatty pants on? Yeah. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Writer's Book Club podcast. I'm Michelle Barakoff and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. Today it's my very great pleasure to bring you a chat with one of the most talented writers I know. She's also an incredible writing teacher and a very dear friend of mine, Jo Riccioni. So that little bit you heard at the top of the episode was my attempt to try something a little bit different, but I don't think I quite pulled it off. Because Joe and I live a couple of streets away from each other, I thought it would be fun to do the podcast in Joe's writing studio in her garden in person. I had this whole plan to go the full Claire Nichols. Many of you will know Claire from the ABC's The Book Show. She visits authors occasionally in their writing spaces and has a little chat to them there about their writing and what's on their desk and their walls and their shelves. But my idea didn't quite go according to plan. First of all, as you heard, I got stuck in Frida Kahlo's face. So it's a gorgeous screen of bamboo beads hanging across the door of Joe's studio with Frida Kahlo's face painted on them. You can see a picture of it actually over on my Instagram account. And they kind of got all tangled up and I got stuck. Then I thought I had positioned the microphone perfectly equidistant between Joe and me, but I didn't have the multi-directional setting turned on. So it really only picked up Joe's voice clearly and I sound like I'm at the bottom of a well which is perfectly fine because Joe's the one we really want to hear from in this interview. I've given the audio edit my absolute best shot, but it's slightly less than the usual mediocre quality you would expect from me. But the content, chef's kiss. We talked about Joe's writing process, her experiences with writing different genres and her recent success, an international deal if you don't mind. Joe also spoke about character development, ideas for world building, and the common mistakes she sees as a writing teacher. I also got Joe to do a reading from The Rising, so you can get an idea of how she handles dialogue and character because she's just so good at those things. If you are a fantasy writer, Joe also gives some great advice about the kinds of events you should be attending, and she spilled the beans on the software she used to create the map at the front of the book. There is a lot of work being a fantasy author. Let me tell you about the Branded series. It's a duology starting with the Branded and concluding with The Rising. They are epic high concept fantasy novels with themes around gender and class, served up with a little bit of romance, loads of conflict and plenty of quickfire narrative pace. What are they about? So in the divided land of Isfolk, there are two classes, the vulnerable Branded and the immune Pure. Orphaned twins Nara and Osha are sequestered in the privileged citadel as breeding stock, but Nara yearns for freedom. When she's forced to run, aided by the mysterious Wrangler, Nara unlocks her latent powers, unveiling a forgotten childhood. Escaping to the capital, race, the sisters face political intrigue and a prophecy about a pure healer, which draws attention to Nara's twin sister Osha and her healing abilities. 
If she's to protect her sister, Nara must navigate new allies and old enemies. That's easier said than done when she's caught between her first love and the man who's stolen her heart but broken her trust. Worn down by lies and deception, Nara is forced to question who she truly is and what she can believe. I absolutely loved these novels. If you think you might like a combination of The Handmaid's Tale meets The Prison Healer with a dash of The Hunger Games and a little bit of Pride and Prejudice, you're going to love these books. So who is Jo Riccioni? She is a novelist and short story writer whose latest fantasy series, The Branded Season, is out now in Australia and will be published in the US and UK in 2024. Her first novel, The Italians at Cleet's Corner Store, that's her literary novel, was published in Australia and the UK. It won the International Rubery Award for Fiction and was long listed for the New Angle Prize. Her short fiction has been published in Best Australian Stories twice and in anthologies in Australia and overseas. She's won short story awards in the UK, the US and Australia. Please enjoy my chat with the talented Joe Riccioni. Okay, alive here in the shed. Joe's shed. <laughs> the she shed. The she shed. Yeah. Tell us about the she shed, Joe's. This is where you write. This is where you run away. This is where you're sitting on a chaise. Yeah. You have little rests between. It is. And I don't feel guilty anymore about that. I used Good. to a lot, but Good. I do have a day bed and I think it's important to dream. It's not always for sleeping. Sometimes it's for thinking yeah. and reading, of course. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you've got these incredible bookshelves behind us. You've got maps on the wall. I can see in the bookshelves you've got some very special books in there as well. Mm. It just feels like you've surrounded yourself with things that make you feel good, that feel like a writer, that feel connected to who you are. Yeah, it was. this place was definitely a bucket list thing. Um, you know, I'm not a young writer. I'm an old writer and I did work <laughs> for a long time. And I still work. Still, I'm still a, a part-time writer. Um, so that, that I did come into a windfall and I decided I'm going to reinvest in the company, the company being my writing other people who own companies do that Absolutely. so i'm like yeah i've got a publishing record so i can actually do that if i want to and even if i never write any more books it's still a place for me because let's face it women don't have rooms of their own um you can often have a big house but women in that house still never have their own space yeah. they only have the kitchen or the, <laughs> you know so many novelists I know have written their novels on the kitchen table or a little table in the hallway or somewhere like that. So I'm like, no, I'm going to reinvest in the company. I'm going to, it's a little demountable shed. Um, and um, it's going to have, one of my big dreams was to always have bookshelves that had doors on them. <laughs> I don't know why. It's the, well, I do know why. It's because of dust. And also because some of my books are collectible and some of them are very old. And um I wanted to protect them yeah. and, um, you know, they're only Ikea ones. They're no great shakes, <laughs> but they do look pretty cool when they've got all the books inside. You know, the moment I walk in here, it's my workspace. It's my thinking space, my dream space. And, um, yes, I've, I have never regretted a single penny I spent on this shed. It's yeah. wonderful. And it doesn't feel like a, as you say, just a demountable. It feels like a really cozy, solid little yeah. Hey, yeah. It's a proper room, isn't it? Yeah. Room. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a great idea having the doors on the bookshelves because um, we live near the ocean. Don't yeah. We? So so. It's, you know, things do tend to get a little moldy mm. and spotty and dotty. Yes. 
yeah, actually some of my paperbacks, I've opened them up and I've found little, I don't know what these little insects, have you ever get seen those little yes. insects inside your paperbacks? Do you think in 10,000 years people will be digging up our books and yeah. find these little bugs in and they'll be able to date us by <laughs> yeah, probably tiny book insects? Yeah. This is my first podcast with a writer in person and it's because Joe and I live really close to each other and we've known each other for quite a few quite years. Quite a long time, been yeah. talking about writing on our walks around the headland for a really long time. In fact, the first time I think we met at a dinner and it wasn't till about four hours of jabbering away about writing and life and, and books <laughs> that we realised we both had sons the same age and not only that, but they were in the same class at the same school. <laughs> <laughs> bizarre <laughs> really but that's kind of nice because yeah. women so often meet the other way around you know exactly. they always you know meet because this this woman I met who's a mother of my son's friend and it was like we met on our own terms which was really nice it's been such a joy to watch your writing journey and play a small part in that as well um and you have played a massive part in my writing journey too so it's been a yeah. symbiotic relationship yes it too. has it's been amazing it's been a great yeah i mean just through all the ups and downs it's great to have someone you can share that with who knows the industry so yeah. well because let's face it our our friends and family often don't know the industry and how it works yeah. or some of the weird little feelings you get when people are thinking you should be celebrating or some of the small wins when people don't really understand why you're celebrating, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, another writer, another writer will know that. So. Mm -hmm. I want to dive into a writing chat about your books for a chance. Yes. You've had quite the journey from not just a physical journey from England to Australia, but your writing journey as well from uh, studying medieval literature mm -hmm. at university in England to writing a very literary novel to two wildly successful YA fantasy <laughs> novels in yeah. a series. Tell us how that journey has been for you and, and what took you to all these various places. Yeah, well, it wasn't planned. <laughs> Is it maybe, I don't know. Sometimes we say things aren't planned and perhaps they are deep down, I don't know. But the medieval literature connection definitely was a massive influence on me for my for my fantasy series um, because, oh, I mean, studying literature anyway was, was an influence as a writer. Um, but it was only in my 30s that I actually, once once I'd had kids, weirdly enough, that I thought, I might be able to be a writer. After these years and years and years of studying other writers and teaching literature and, you know, it was only with that sort of confidence I gained from having kids that sort of empowered me to think, I'm going to have a go at this. And, um, yeah, it started with short stories and they did okay and then I started winning prizes and then had was on track to do a story collection, which an editor had actually asked me to put together for her, Aviva Tuffield, who worked for Scribe at the time. And so I went away and started writing some more short stories for that collection. And in the meantime, I was on I, at my girlfriend in my writer's group, because I was in a writer's group from very early days. Uh, she said, I'm going to do this Fab this inaugural Faber Academy and I'm um, going to learn how to write a novel and you know get some tips and you get to meet agents and publishers at the end. She said, there's one spot left. Do you think you want to do it with me? And it was expensive. It was expensive. So I was like, I just won a short story competition and the prize money. I think it might have been 
I, I can't remember which short story competition it was. I think it might have been when I placed second in the the age, and um, which it doesn't exist anymore. That short story competition competition, which is a shame. But um, and I thought again, reinvest in the company. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this. I'm gonna invest in this course, and I did it, and it was brilliant. I really really enjoyed doing it, and um, and then. My editor, who was waiting for these short story collections, said, are you writing a novel? And I said, well, everybody's writing a novel, aren't they? But she said, but no, seriously, are you? Because I want to see it. <laughs> and so I had about, I think I had about 20,000 words at the time. And I lied and said I had 30. <laughs> she goes, send me those. So I quickly like, spent another ten, two weeks writing another 10,000. And then I sent it to her and she, she signed it before it was finished. So I was, you know, that sounds like a really big deal, but I really feel like Aviva and the the team at Scribe gave me a kind of mentorship, really, in a way, because I, I did get quite a lot of hands-on help with finishing that novel. I was slow. <laughs> they kept trying to, you know, jolly me up. And, um, yeah, I finally did it. Yeah. Wonderful. I bet you would have young kids then as well, right? I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just used to write when they were I, – I, when they were little, I, I had them in um, kindy, um, you know, preschool – paid preschool a couple of days a week and um we don't we didn't really ha have family who were able to help at all in um australia so i was like paid for every care that we ever had you know even if i wanted to go the, the gyne i had to have somebody look after my kids you know so which most most women do you know but it's you know my partner worked freelance and it was all over the place so yeah so i just thought right I'm, while they're there i'm going to be um at first i was doing it while they're in kindy and then I got part-time work I you know financially we needed more money so I did it and sort of shared out the space and then I started the 5 a.m's because oh. I got really into it and mm. then the novel had deadlines so yeah it just you just carve out the space where you have mm. to you know it, it is a bit easier though I have to say I, I had an advantage because I did have people waiting for my work I think that really really got me over a lot of hurdles that a lot of emerging writers um, struggle with, you mm. know, with finding the time and making themselves do it. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, that helped, but you know, it comes with its own expectations that as well, because you're, then you're going, Oh, am I good enough? You know, they want this book. They think it's going to be good. Oh, and God, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I never really, I guess I never really had that. What some people, what some experienced writers call that luxury of the first novel, which mm. is the luxury of the first novel is you get to write it without any interference, any deadlines any you know I, I never really had that so and now here you are with the best-selling series the branded series yeah and I just realized I haven't really answered the question of why I changed <laughs> I knew we were gonna just meander because yeah that's what we do, we yeah, we do this normally we're walking aren't we so yeah looking at you like being so close and yeah yeah because we don't normally get eye contact do we <laughs> just like walking and avoiding other walkers um, yeah, so I did have another book, a literary book on the go, and I won residences. I won two residences, one at Verona and one at Bundanen, to to work on that book. And the, the Italians had been published in the UK and the Australia and, had, you know, won this prize. And I guess I felt the weight of expectation. Um, and I went away and wrote this book, and it was something that was quite close to my heart personally. And... Um, I realise now, looking back, it was probably too close. You know, I was trying to write about something. I know people do. People write about, you know, their thinly veiled autobiographies, mm -hmm. but it wasn't working for me. And my writers group were like, 
Joe, this is just not you. It's kind of like like heavy going and turgid. <laughs> and, not what you want to hear. Yes. And I put it aside and they gave they gave me permission. They just said, look, go away and write something you really enjoy, really love, and something that you really want to write. And I'd had this idea for this fantasy novel for a long time. Not I mean, not the exact idea, but the seeds of it, the, yeah. the feeling of it, of what I wanted to create for a long time. And when I put my mind to it, it just poured out. It was so different from writing the other book that, that, that died. <laughs> the book that died, I call it. <laughs> so your inspiration for this was Margaret Atwood? It you? was originally. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I always, I mean, I, I studied Handmaid's Tale as part of the uh, feminist perspectives in literature course uh, uh, that I took at uni. And I remember it wasn't, I mean, it, I'm old enough that it wasn't that long that no. it's after it had been published that it came out. And I remember thinking, wow, this is just amazing stuff. And it's, mm. I loved the, the politics behind the, the novel. And that was what I was drawn to, um, you know, a, a, about this commodification of female fertility. And when my daughter was going through her teens and starting to become a woman, it was like how how am I presenting this to her as a mom and how is she coping with being a woman in today's society? And I remember thinking, this is a great topic to sort of explore in a fantasy. And she was reading a lot of YA fantasy and I was reading it with her as well because she would say, mom, this book's great, you got to read it. And I would, I'm that kind of person. We still do this. We still watch all these, you know, adult, she's in, she's in animation. So we still watch all these adult animation movies and series and um, we're watching Blue Eye Samurai at the moment, which is absolutely phenomenal. If anybody wants to go and check that out, Netflix. So anyway, basically, <laughs> I wanted to write something, you know, for her, for me, that incorporated my. So I, you know, one of the I know that one of the questions you wanted to ask me was, do you start with character or theme? Mm. And I think I always tell my students, you know start with character of course start with character have a good sense of your character and I'm like actually all my short stories and these two novels started with theme and then the characters came to me I guess the theme was something long term that I've been exploring you know that when I say theme I mean fascinations that people have it's good to have that isn't it you're guiding light through the writing process you can always come back to that passionate thing thing that the idea yeah absolutely and I, I mean you know one of the things I do as a, as a writing tutor is sometimes get my students to write the blurb of their novel not the synopsis but the blurb of it even before they've really begun writing because it's like a roadmap of mood and theme and a little bit of character goes in there but not everything you're not telling the story you're telling the reader what to expect yeah and um sometimes i think that's how i explore starting novels with things that i want to talk about in the story and i think <laughs> branded i remember at your launch one of the things i said was and this could go on the blurb you know if you love the handmaid's tale blended with the hunger games yeah. blended with a little bit of jane austen yes know, sort of witty repartee between the yeah. two leads 
And probably a few more influences through yeah. in there as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I spent five years in Asia and in Asian culture, you know, people learn by mimicking, by copying the great artists. And, you know, Shakespeare would have done that with medieval writers. And um, most of Shakespeare's stories were medieval stories. And I just think that this idea, we get really hung up on this idea of originality. Our originality is going to come because it's us. It's Nobody else can tell that story, but... Um, I do think it's okay to, you know, be influenced by people. That, that's how that's how the creative process works, I think. It, and I always remember listening to Tegan Bennett Daylight talk about every book. I don't know whether it's her words. She might have been quoting someone else, but um, every book is a love letter to another book. And I it really it really sticks with me. And mine are sometimes love letters to several books. <laughs> And I don't mind having that um, kind of meta-referencing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And as people have, you know, astute readers have picked up, there's, there is some Jane Austen uh, nods in the middle of a medieval-inspired fantasy world. <laughs> and that is totally okay. <laughs> More than okay. It's fabulous. It's like little Easter eggs. Yeah. Like, before we started recording, we talked about Kate Mildenhall, who was on the podcast, and one of the books that she used as a reference for her new novel, The Hummingbird Effect, was the book Still Like an Artist by Alison mm. Leon. And then yeah. Ringland mentions it in her new book on creativity, The House That Joy Built. And I I listened to it actually on audiobook and Austin reads it. And it is amazing how many, because he quotes all these people through the ages, filmmakers, artists, writers who have said, steal, like, you know, you yeah. need to steal. This is what yeah. Is essential. It's an essential part of being an artist, being mm. a writer, being a filmmaker, whatever it is you're mm. creating. You are taking these influences and it's making your work richer. Mm. So. Yeah, because we live in an intertextual, you yeah. know, society. We live in an intertext- intertextual or, or meta world. And so many shows do that on, mm. on TV that we watch. Mm. So it's totally, totally okay for totally okay. you to do that as a writer. <laughs> it's amazing how these things crop up in different conversations with different people independently, but that whole idea of influences is so critical, I think, um, and I love it. So, yes, talking about character, Joe, you started with the theme, as you said. Then when did the character of Nara come to you and how did you develop? Um yeah, good question. <laughs> I started with the theme, but then I, when I seriously started thinking about the book, I think it might have been a dream that I had of these women trapped in this sleigh, you know, going at speed across the snow. It was like a wagon, but a sleigh. And I'd seen pictures of this in on Pinterest somewhere. <laughs> and I think it must have entered a dream. And I remember thinking there's these women trapped. And... And then I needed to ask who who they were. And I knew the type of character I wanted for my book. I knew I wanted her to be um, slightly feral and opinionated and quite annoying. And But deep down, a heart of gold and um, incredibly loyal to her sister and um, curious. Yeah, so I had all these sort of traits that I wanted her to display um, that I knew I'd liked in other people's books, some of those traits, you know, in other people's characters. And I thought, right, I'm going to have this type of character, but I want to offset her with this other character who's her sister. Because mm-hmm. I think that is often so typical of 
sisters. They can be similar in lots of ways, but they can be totally opposite in other ways. Yeah, the Bennett sisters. Mm, yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so I thought I'm going to explore that. And as I started writing, uh, you know, for me, it, it comes through process. It comes mm. through the actual act mm. of writing. A lot of the discoveries. I'm I'm a quite an organic writer, so I. It's funny about the plot of Panzer thing because, you know, we talk about sliding scales of that now. And I was having a chat to um, Stacey McEwen, who, who's written an amazing series called Ledge, uh, Ledge and Chasm. Yeah. And then she's got a third one coming out. Um, and uh, we were having a chat about this. And I said, well, you know, do you plot? And she goes, oh, yeah, I plot. And I said, oh, how do you do it? And she goes, well, I get these, you know, I like to make little bullet points before I start. So I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, well, I do that. But I don't call myself a plotter. <laughs> <laughs> so I do that. I do it, I, but it's for me as far as it goes is is bullet points. It would be very very brief before a chapter, and it's weird. I think I hold it all in my head. I think that's why I'm such a nutcase when I've got a novel on the boil, because um, I'm trying to hold it all in my head. Um, and now I know that a lot of writers, you know, visualize it, put it out, lay it out on the floor. I find I'm either doing that in my head or in Scrivener. Because mm. I use Scrivener and I'm a big fan of Scrivener. Mm. So Nara started, yeah, Nara came through the process of writing, mm. basically. And did you then write out those characteristics and bullet points? Do you have a notebook where you try and jot these <clears throat> sorts of things down, these ideas? Um, I have a, I have a notebook, but it's pretty wild. I don't think anybody would be able to understand it. It's very uh, erratic. I do use Scrivener note cards, though. So there's character cards you can use in, in Scrivener. I don't actually write out. Uh, characters well I do in the early stages and then it just diverges so yeah. much from that but it's a good grounding you know feeling as though you're making progress and feeling as though you've got something to start with um so those those character cards are quite useful but they're quite useful later on when you write a series because if you like one, one of the questions I know you're going to ask me is about wrangling a cast of characters yes. those character cards can save you a lot of time just from making sure you're not making um in you know continuity mm. slips or or inconsistencies with the character like you know mm. stating that spelling that i mean even just spelling them their yeah. name wrong sometimes if they're a minor character or because they're not bob and jeff and jane are they yeah Nixon, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah unusual names yeah unusual names but also mm. you might have uh, like my characters tend to have several different names for different depending on uh where they are in the world so that you know they have nicknames and they mm. have um second names in other languages and I, I i love naming i think naming is a really i mean i grew up in you know half of me was brought up in italy so my dad is dad is italian and i spent all my summers there and everybody in the village has their nickname their sobranome and um i think i i was fascinated with that as a kid and i always wanted my own but you know i wasn't i wasn't really a local so i never got one I was just called the Americani because they just think oh, anyone who spoke English was American back in that tiny village in Italy. Thankfully, they didn't think I was English. They thought I was Australian, which is a blessing. <laughs> You're very good at names. Um, maybe you should have 10 more children, Josie. Yeah, I know. I, I really love to have more children just to name them. But that's what I do with my babies in my novels. So. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> so, yes, cast of characters. There is quite a large cast of characters in the brand mm. series. I have you wrangle them in Scrivener, but again, do they just sort of come out on the page because they're also very distinct? Yeah, and no, I discover it as I'm writing, yeah, as I'm gosh. going along. You know, I think that's why I think all my writing's been quite dialogue heavy, actually. 
I love dialogue. Mm. Um, I like talking to people. So, you know, <laughs> it's natural. Um, but yeah, when they start to speak, uh, it adds more to the character. Mm. And I know then I'll go back and enhance certain things in the ne- next round, in the next edit. Um, although I do, I'm the type of writer who does edit as I go along mm. a lot. Mm. That makes me slow. <laughs> Don't recommend it. It means that you're handing in a pretty polished manuscript to your. Yeah, my public my publishers always say, "Oh, yeah, it's it's always quite good copy from you. It's not mm-hmm. much that needs to be done." But um, I mean, structurally, there often is. But yeah. but but when it comes to copy edits, but that's when I then flick the switch, and I'm an absolute nightmare. I just think my publishers hate me because I literally cannot let it go. I'm like looking for word repetition, and you know that word's not quite right, and even in proofs, like. I hate that. Don't ever do that. Please don't do that. But anyway, I'm trying to get better at that. But it is your work of two years, so it's very hard to let it go at the last minute with something that doesn't feel right. And, you know, I've heard Zadie Smith just before doing a reading and has been correcting <laughs> lines in that book before she reads them in the published, published book. book. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think I'm alone in wanting to change things, but um, yeah. I almost find it excruciating to read the book out loud after I've after it's been published. It's like it's not mine anymore. It's out in the world, and it, it is what it is. I think now is a good time to do that reading because it's such a great example of how you use dialogue for all sorts of things. And I think once people listen to this piece, they'll get an understanding of who these characters are and how you use dialogue to really bring out their personalities yeah as well as provide information because yeah. that's the other thing this is a second book in a series and you do have to find those subtle ways of bringing in information from the first book into the second so I think this passage that you're about to read gives us a really good yeah view of those things and I'm I'm one of these Right, so I would like to get into the action straight away. I, I do think that, you know, the hook is getting readers to buy in mm. from the word go. I mean, they are going to be with you for the long haul, but if you can make the ride really exciting to begin with, I think they're more likely to stay with you. So this is the very opening to the rising. And even if you don't know much about the story, I'm just going to give you a quick a summary. Yeah, a little bit of background of, to the scene. So my two main characters um nara and the wrangler uh who does have a name but we don't find out what his name is for quite some time they are love interests obviously and in the first book they have had a love interest but i don't without any spoilers don't want to give any spoilers it's gone awry and they've had a spat of quite a serious nature and and but they are still he, he has taken her to his homelands in a country called race and um, she doesn't know much about the country, but it's the first time that she's been able to uh, take some time out to go hunting because she's a hunter. She's seen that there's jungle there and she wants to explore it. And that's Nara's character. She's her affinity is with animals and she is, a you know, a crack uh, tracker and hunter. Mm. Uh, and that that is part of her magic. Really. So she goes out uh, on her own and she's just seen an, an animal. My animals have, you know, uh, they're kind of like real animals, but they are fantasy animals. But you can imagine the type of animal they are. So this is like a buck, kind of a, a small, small deer. And she's taken a shot at it. And now Nara is used to getting a headshot or, a, a, you know, a heart shot. And she 
is pissed off that she's missed. And this is what happens. So I spin around searching for the archer. Boots crush the sultry tick of the undergrowth and the jungle shivers and parts. The wrangler wears a sleeveless gilet of soft leather, bronze arms dewy with sweat. Loose linen pants match the sand scarves draped around his neck and rings of gold clamp his black curls, picking out the gilded tooling on his leather boots, the scabbard of his curved sword. He couldn't appear any more different from the stable hand I met mere months ago, bundled in patchy furs as he exercised his sled dogs across the Isfalki tundra. Now he might be a prince of race, stepped from his hunting lodge. He cocks an eyebrow at me. Bow arm a bit off this morning, little scourge. He knows I never miss a shot, and he'd never miss an opportunity to bait me about it. Still following me like a lost puppy, Wrangler? I tighten the strap of my quiver so I don't have to look at him, trying to ignore the angry race of my heart. Not such a good idea to be out here alone, he says, tone changing. Well, that's one I haven't heard before. Tell me something I don't know, why don't you? I'm serious. All manner of hunters stalk the kaida, human and animal. But if you must go exploring, at least don't do it alone. He inspects his boots, sheepish. I thought Brim might. Brim might what? He has the audacity to look jealous. You thought he'd be keeping guard over me as usual. I shake my head in contempt. Here's some news for you, Wrangler. Brim might once have been my warder, but we're not in Isfalk anymore. I don't need permission for my movements from him or anyone else. And I'm not about to go jumping into his arms simply because yours are taken. I shoulder my bow. Not that it's any of your business if I do. Straight for the jugular, just as I'd expect. But your assumptions are as off mark as your aim this morning, Scourge. He smirks and I want to slap him right across that mole winking in his cheek. What I was going to say is that I thought Brim, as a military man, would have wanted someone at your back, especially in unknown territory. He takes a breath, voice softening a little. I knew you'd head out here at the first opportunity. It was written all over your face as soon as you caught sight of the jungle yesterday. That longing for the wilds, the need to be hunting again. He says it like he's talking of himself as much as me. I turn my back on him, casting my gaze about the clearing like I'm scouting for game. Brim might have eventually guessed where to come looking for me when I didn't join Osha and the others for breakfast, but the Wrangler knew before I was even missed. After all his lies and secrecy, it galls that he knows me so well. I don't want him to see my anger, though. Getting angry shows I care. Indifference will pain him more. I know him well, too. Look, Nara, he says, about yesterday. But he trails off like he can't find the words to describe the events that changed everything between us. Yesterday, I ask, you mean when your girlfriend stepped aboard the Narcat while I was still naked in your bed? The betrothed you forgot to tell me about? He sighs. Nara, let's talk. No, you're the one who should have talked weeks ago when we were riding through the wasteland plains and you kissed me. I kissed you? Are you sure about that, Scourge? I snatch a breath. After everything he's done, he dares suggest I was the one who made the first move. Go to hell, Wrangler. Tempting, but keeping an eye on you is a far worse fate, I think. I don't need anyone keeping an eye on me, least of all you. Fact's alive, if I'm to be a prisoner here too, I might as well have saved myself the journey from Orlaston. Or from Isfalk, for that matter. You're not a prisoner here. He frowns like he's offended. You can go where you like. Really? Is that the truth, Wrangler? It takes all the willpower I possess to gentle my voice and quiet my rattled breathing. 
So I'm free to do what I want. Have you ever done otherwise? He folds his arm and scans the clearing as if my being here is a case in point. Can I ask a favour then? My change in tone makes him takes him by surprise and his expression slips from suspicion to hope. Perhaps he can't quite believe I'd give him the chance to earn my forgiveness. And yet he seems to long for it anyway. I draw close, so close that his lips almost brush my own. There's something I want, Nexim. I trace the neck of his gilet with a finger and his pupils dilate when I say his name. Will you do it for me? Voice a low rumble, he answers. Your will, my hands, remember? I remember. I bite my lip and his breath hitches. So what I want, I say, stabbing a finger in his chest, is for you to skip on back to your Lifort and leave me the fuck alone. That's just such a brilliant reading. God, you read well. Oh, thank you. A couple of things. So exactly what we were talking about before. So, I mean, this is the sort of second page of the of the novel and it's the second novel in the series. So you know, where you're talking about the Wrangler. The Wrangler wears a sleeveless gilet and soft leather, so on and so forth. Um, he couldn't appear any more different from the stable hand I met mere months ago, bundled in patchy furs. Mm. As he. So you're bringing in that little bit of mm. uh, backstory from the first, mm-hmm. but in a really effective way. And then the other thing I think is a really good thing for writers to learn from this excerpt is the the way you replace dialogue tags with action. Mm, so yeah. you don't really say he says, she says. We've got something like Brim might what? He has the audacity to look jealous. So mm. you've got no he mm. says or she says there. You thought he'd be keeping guard over me as usual. I shake my head in contempt. I love that because mm. it just brings life to the dialogue mm. is that something that you really consciously yeah definitely do? consciously yeah. do it yeah. I'm a big audio book reader right. and I think um or listener rather yes. <laughs> and um you know I love a good voice actor mm. and I think that is their cue to they have to bring out the voice because yes. if they don't bring that differentiation of voice with no speech tags it can be very confusing. And I, I was actually, as I was reading, I was thinking, I hope they can tell who's speaking here because um, I'm not an actor, you know. But but Leah Philly, who reads the audio books, has done such an amazing job of it. Mm-hmm. She's got a lovely, deep, rich voice, mm-hmm. uh, which is just suits Nara just well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I am conscious about getting rid of speech tags. And, you know, as much as Raymond Carver is one of my favourite short story writers and everything's he said, she said, she says, he says... <laughs> Uh, and I love that. That's a stylistic choice. You do you know, have some not, of those. I do have some, yeah. Throughout. Yeah, I actually use it. When, and when I teach, I use a Michael Robotham piece, actually, to teach mm-hmm. uh, my students about how you don't really need speech tags. You only need one or two just to clarify who's speaking and the rest of it can be done through action. Yeah. yeah. It's really funny. You never use your own work when you're teaching. It's so embarrassing <laughs> to do that. So good because, you know, we've also got this bit towards in the middle where she says you know yesterday you mean when your girlfriend stepped aboard the narcat while I was still naked in your bed the betrothed you forgot to tell me about he sighs Nara let's talk Mm. and again we're getting a bit of backstory juicy Mm. backstory yeah but also in that section you're really showing us their personalities you need to juggle balls as a writer. You need to, I think with scene, it's not just doing one thing. Mm-hmm. You're doing multiple things at a time. 
Um, that that's the aim when I set out to to write a scene. It's like in the back of my my mind, I n- need to know where I'm going with the scene, what the main thing is going to be that we reveal in the scene. But it's also how's that character development going to work? How are they going to play off each other? And we also rehash some plot at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, you are juggling balls, definitely. That first chapter has to do a lot of work doesn't mm, it mm. yeah and I mean like this isn't something that comes straight off the back no. it comes with men- much much editing did you have to rework that first chapter of the second book quite a few times to really get yeah quite a few hundred times <laughs> yeah I mean I tend to edit my first early chapters a lot a lot a lot a lot mm. and then the further I get into the book it seems to be less mucking around with the chapters and then by the time I get to the ending very rarely changes with the exception of this ending which is an interesting story actually because the arc went out with a slightly different ending (laughs) it's now highly collectible the arc is the (laughs) advanced reader's copyright or advanced you sent me a copy you dropped a copy Mm, off to me a beautiful inscription but there was an orange post-it note which I'm reading here p.s please don't read the arc so much has changed since then including the ending exclamation exclamation <laughs> yeah yeah it's, like, it's, a, it's all good i didn't get enough it's fine <laughs> yeah there weren't many that went out actually but um but now i want one because yeah really it's not so it's not so different it's it's not you know it's not great yeah. changes but it's a significant enough change that to make it worthwhile and to make it ha- worth a, a read of that final chapter because... Well, you can't tell us what it yes. is. No. You can't tell us the story. There's only a few people out there who know. Mm. It was it was just to do with, in conjunction with my editors, who mm. made a good point. And I'm very good at listening to my editors, I think. I, I think they say really good things and I think they know their stuff. And um, there aren't many times where I will say, in fact, my writer's group go to bat for me. They're like, you should have said that. We don't think that's right. And I'm like, no, I think it is right. (laughs) They get very protective. Protective of you as the writer and your publisher is also protective of you as the writer. They're protective of your readers. And they presumably know yeah, who that reader is, and they've got a handle on them. Yeah, I mean, it's such a privilege to work with some an expert who's gonna just who has your interests at heart, you know, your best interests at heart, and trying to make this book the best it can be. So it's not you're not in a battle with editors. You're you're working together. You're working alongside each other. So we've talked about this as a series. What what else do you need to take into account? And we should probably preface this by saying originally. In your mind, this was two books, then it was one, then it was two again. Is that the way it worked? Uh, Yeah, that was because um, it was always going to be two. Yeah. Um, And then when I sent the first book to my agent, she said, look, fantasy is a hard sell at the moment. And, well, it always is, I think. (laughs) Let's face it, there are only certain publishers who publish fantasy. And she said, it's a hard sell. And my agent is is a specialist in selling rights, so she was interested in pitching to the US first. And she said, I want to pitch it as a single book, as a standalone, because, you know, I think it's less of a gamble for publishers to to give a standalone a go, whereas if it's three books, it's like you're taking a risk on a debut author and you're still waiting for another two books. And if the first one doesn't sell, you haven't finished the series and you've got these other two Mm. books, and that would be heartbreaking, right? Mm. Just publish them because you have to um so i said sure let's make it one book so i went and re- rearranged a whole heap of stuff wow oh. but it 
but then it just made it so much easier when when it finally did sell and Pantera said we feel as though there's a lot in this book and is it possibly two books and I said yes funnily enough it is two books so then it was just a case of the second book um you know splitting it up and beefing up I still had to write a lot of new material mm-hmm. because yeah um it still took quite a while um and then I just beefed it up into the two books and I feel that it's much a much more satisfying mm-hmm. read as two books surprising to me to to hear you say that fantasy is a hard sell because it feels like they're all over book talk they are those fantasy readers are mm. passionate mm. and voracious they're probably in my mind they're right up there with the romance readers you know they cannot get enough books yeah but i mean that has that has happened in recent years though i mean like um the book talk explosion yeah has been great for fantasy. And I think Rebecca Yaros and Fourth Wing, um, you know, that is, I mean, it's great. I love the books. I think they're fantastic. Um, But it's a timing thing as well. It was, the time was right for a book like that to go viral and great that it's fantasy for once instead of something else, you know? And I think that's had a knock-on effect because I'm just about to fly to Melbourne tomorrow for this Small Press Network Book of the Year Award, which I've been shortlisted for, for the branded. Thank you. But I just feel like, what is a fantasy book doing on that list? And I'm so delighted, but also shocked. Because it's so well um, as well. Oh, well, thank you, Michelle. Incredible writing. Thank you. Um, but still, fantasy doesn't normally get a look in. So I feel... As though ha- fantasy is having a bit of a moment, but um, we were talking when when we were pitching this, and then it was on spec for a while, and that's when COVID hit, and we were like, "Who is going to want a fantasy book that is based around a virus?" <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> but actually, it's not. I mean, as I said in the interview with Small Press Network, is it's not about a virus really. It's about the fallout and how governments can uh, manipulate information to make people believe. They are a certain identity or they've only got a certain value to society Mm. or they're in a minority group. And, you know, this is something that happens in the real world all the time. So the virus is just the setup. It's a device to to show all those things. I mean, healing healing and motherhood are two important themes in the book. And I think, you know, it's, it's great that they go hand in hand in the virus setting because they're the roles that I wanted to explore, the roles that get women get put in or foisted on to them a lot of the time, um, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes not voluntarily. But it's interesting because they are, even today, still very common female roles. So it does sort of dovetail in quite nicely with that backdrop. But it's not, like I say, I'm not not going on about viruses a lot in the book. Tell me about the fantasy. Is it YA fantasy or just fantasy? Because I feel like this is an... Adults, we are shelved <laughs> in the adult section. Good, okay. Yeah, and Pantera pitched it as an adult fantasy book, but fantasy. a lot of people have said why fantasy when they've been interviewing me because the the age of the characters make it naturally, um, it could fit in the YA category. And my agent was like, "Do you imagine this is YA or adult?" And I'm like, "Either crossover." I was a bookseller, so I know that there, there were a lot of books you could have put in either section. And to be honest, the two things in this which are going to, you know, be trigger warnings would be violence and sex. But I think I have less violence and sex than uh, a lot of books that are put in the YA section. 100%. Yeah. 
by somebody handing me a copy of The Hunger Games mm. many years ago, probably when it first came out, yeah, years ago or something. And that's that was YA, yeah. And I read the first chapter and <laughs> texted her and said, "What the hell have you done to me?" Yeah, yeah. It's really this violent. Wild. Yeah, I had a I, I was a bookseller when it came out, and um, I was uh, you know recommending it because I loved it. Oh, I loved God, the series. It's incredible. Um, and I did have a, a parent come back saying, "This has given my kid nightmares, and I think you should have had uh, it should not be in yeah. the YA, YA section." Um, but you know, different kids, different different sen- sensibilities. Awesome. Tell me about the fans, Joe. Your social <laughs> media is full of. You were just at Supernova. <laughs> something con this, something con that. Like you're off on these panels. I see you with all sorts of different people across the country. Like, yeah. Wow. It is. And it's so much fun. It is so much fun. I mean, you've obviously caught me at the moment when I'm really on the yeah. publish- publicity trail, but Supernova is the big event really for me as, a, as a, an emerging fantasy writer um, because you are talking directly to fans who read and buy fantasy. So it, and they're, they, they're rocking up in, in cosplay and it is so much fun yeah uh go check it out um uh, you know there's some bits of video on my social media i mean there will be the other authors authors i was on the panel with um have done little bits of snippets of social media too and it's it is a lot of fun on so many levels because you get to meet a bunch of other fantasy or specific authors and you get to meet all the fans directly and you're there for the weekend. So you go out to dinner and have cocktails and everything with these other writers. And you know what it's like when you, they are your tribe. They're your people who are writing the same stuff as you. I've been to loads and loads of writers events and, you know, it's just a mishmash of other writers writing different genres, which is really fun too. Uh, like Romance Writers of Australia. I gave a workshop there this year and that was an incredible amount of fun. So fun. Um, but this is where you're actually meeting your readers yeah. and not many writers get to do that unless they do bookshop events. And as we know, unfortunately, bookshop events are are dying, a death. Um, I can say that honestly as a bookseller, they were always a hard call anyway, unless you're a, a celebrity writer mm. or you've got several writers doing an event together um it's really it's a really hard sell a bookshop mm. event now people have got used to zoom you know events and and people are just really picky about what they go to but the fantasy readers yeah. they are very passionate i did book fair australia as well which is um a great event which is for traditionally published and self-published authors and hybrid so uh it's all it that is just readers so whereas supernova is people who are into comics and cosplay and people go for all sorts of reasons or multiple reasons they'll go to meet their favorite actors who are in fandom shows like you know the walking dead or doctor who or the boys and there's uh, people who just go for cosplay and then there's the people who come for writers and to meet writers and listen to panels uh, that writers give Book Fair Australia is just writers and readers. So it's like you get the real reading fans who are on BookTok and Bookscram. And that was a great uh, success for me that year, this year as well. So shout out to Book Fair Australia because there's a great team of people who are running that show too. So anyone, any listeners who are writing fantasy, is this something that your publicist would organise or can they pitch? Yeah, it's a good question actually because, um, yeah, your publicist does, does it usually. Mm-hmm. But with Book for Australia, you can do it yourself because it's hybrid and self-published. 
So, and it was set up by by someone uh, who specifically wanted to give a venue for self-published authors to promote their work. You, you, you just need to go online and check how the pitching works. I know with Supernova, it's by invitation. So you'd, you'd, you'd have to um, get your publicist involved in that. And yeah. they'd, they'd be sending advance reader copies to uh, Paige, who's the person who organizes the literary guests for Supernova. Yeah. Mm. But there's Comic-Con as well. I haven't done Comic-Con. There's lots of other cons yes. that you can do. Each one is slightly different, run in a slightly different way. But it's almost like a, a big day out rather than just doing an evening in a bookshop. Yeah. As much as there are, I mean, you know, I desperately want to support indie booksellers and, and bookstores full stop. That event model, I think there needs to be some changes with that about how it goes about. Maybe a bit more like Northern Beaches Readers and Writers Festival, yes. that kind of event, you know, where it's, a, again, it's a day out. So you're getting your, you're maximizing your audience. Yeah. Such yeah. a great event coming back next year. Yes. Next year, yes. So. Very exciting. Northern Beaches Readers and Writers Festival. So make sure you look that up and get along if you can. Joe, your writing process, the juicy stuff. We yes. all love, we all love it, don't we? Yeah. And sit at your desk and you have a scene to write mm-hmm. and you go, right, what am I going to write? Yeah, I'm actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm staring down the barrel of a new manuscript right now and it's pretty scary. Um, yeah, so what I do, I mean, even though I do have days in the week where I can write for the whole day, I still get up at five. So I remember talking to Maria Lewis about this at Supernova one year and, um, we were on a panel, I think together. And she said, um, you know, we were, they were talking about writing process and I said, I get up at 5am still. And she goes, Oh my God, I'm not doing that for love nor money for anyone, (laughs) books or no books. I thought that was hysterical because she's obviously, you know, like doesn't that is not her writing time at all. And I think everybody has to find their own writing time. But for me, it's that I'm useless at night. Can you go straight to the page though at 5 a.m.? I do. I make myself. Yeah, I, I get a cup of tea. I don't eat breakfast. Um, I literally, I mean, I got it out of a book somewhere. Julia um, Cameron. Cameron, Julie Cameron. That's yeah. it. Yeah. The artist's way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it came from there. And yeah, just get get a cup of tea, go and sit down. And I do that kind of Hemingway technique, even though I'm not a big Hemingway fan. <laughs> just, just throw that out there. No, I mean, I respect him, but yeah, uh, not not my favourite writer. But um, he has this amazing technique of saying that he, or well, I don't know whether it's true or not. You leave, you leave your paragraph half finished. Yeah, when you think you're just about almost know where this scene is going to end, don't end it ends it when in the morning so that then you're in the flow for the next thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. I've found as I get older, I don't know if it's the whole menopausal brain fog thing, but I have used that technique and then the next morning going, I have not faintest idea where I was going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why I said sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. But you've got your dot points or you've got, I've got my dot points. Yeah. yeah. So you know what a scene has to achieve for you. So what are those things? You want to go in with a bit of an idea of what it needs to. Yeah. I'll kind of, um, I'll be holding it in my head about like, uh, if I know I've had several scenes of high octane action, I know that I need a beat of, of, pause, contemplation, a slower scene, something a little bit more thoughtful and poignant. So I'll think I'll, I'll be thinking of pace as a, as I'm reading. And that's why I like rereading what I've written and I can't stop myself from editing a bit. Um, but I like rereading 
constantly because it helps me with pacing right from the start. Um, and I, I, it's funnily enough, I tend to find that I don't have to go back and edit too much with pace because I'm holding it in my head mm. to start with. I'll be thinking, you know, when when can we have the kiss scene or the romance scene? Or when can we have that battle scene? When can we, how much more do I need before I, we can get to that? So I'll have the main, um, I guess they're like on the narrative arc, they're the first complication, second complication points mm. that I'm holding in my head and I'm working my way towards that with each scene. Well, I work chronologically. I'm just such a, I think I'm a basic bitch when it comes to writing. Start at the beginning and then I work my way to the end. <laughs> I was fascinated when Kate Mildenhall was saying, you know, she just like goes to the heat. Yeah. I'm like, no, I hold that off and make it really like I've got to really want it. You've got to really work for that heat. <laughs> and by the time I get there, it's like, oh, engines firing. <laughs> away from the shed, people where she finding the heat. Um, that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, everyone has that different process. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and these, um, even between books, people have a different process. One of the added complications of writing fantasy is that you have to create an entire world, Joe, mm. and that can be daunting to a lot of writers. And I'm sure that's what maybe puts some writers off writing fantasy. How do you do it? Uh, you do it the same way that you do it with a <laughs> contemporary novel. You still got to create a world. You got to create their unique world of your character, right? And what is so important to them in this world? And you know, when I was writing the Italians, it's contemporary novels, historical novel. You know, people knew the outcome. And that's the thing with historical novels, isn't it? People know the outcome of, mm. of historical events. Um, but you still got to create the characters' world and their dilemmas and their desires within that world and what their obstacles are. But in terms of creating a fantasy world, I always like to use touchstones of reality of, of the real world and then just flip them a bit. So you, you know, they're very much based in one foot in the real world and one foot in the fantasy world. When I read the word snowjack, I could picture that animal. Like I, I saw it as a rabbit in the snow. Yeah. And, and one of my sort of deer type animals is called Turkus because it's from the Middle East, but uh, is it's not really the Middle East. It's race, but my touchstone for that country is the Middle East. Yeah. So it's interesting. I I think I did a workshop. In, as we've mentioned it before, the Romance Writers of Australia this year. I did a workshop on world building, and one of the things that I think that the feedback I got from a lot of the attendees was I really loved how you said to put your novel into the world, not the world into your novel. So when you're, it's a bit complicated, yeah. So you only put what you need of the world into your novel so that the novel works. Yes. The rest of it can be iceberg. So you've built the world in your head. Mm -hmm. You can have the elfish languages and the, you know, the mm -hmm. the runes and the alphabet and all the rest of it. But does it need to go into the book? Maybe not, you know. So, so it's the bits that the characters are interacting with. Exactly, mm -hmm. yes. The rest of it can be, is for your benefit so that by the time you get to describe part of the world, it's so fully formed in your mind that it becomes completely convincing to the reader um so that's one way of approaching world building a lot of people write overwrite and then take stuff out later on when they're editing um map as well i've got the story about the map i'll tell you the story about the map a lot of fantasy readers love a map they want a map they're very disappointed if they don't get a map 
Yeah. But um, much of a touchstone was the map for you in the writing. It t- <laughs> the map in the book is not the map I use, it's the touchstone. My touchstone map is like a rag. on. It was like a, a, a loads of streaks on a napkin, lots of versions of it on different scraps of paper here and there. And it's hysterical. I think I did a social media post about the map that I... The map that I actually worked from and then what it became. But <laughs> you might find this interesting to know that publishers don't necessarily commission people to do maps as part of the cost of the book. So a lot of authors have that done themselves. Depending on the size of your publisher and depending on your fame as a fantasy author, they, you know, bigger authors might get it all, you know, part of the package. But I know many, many writers I've spoken to who said, oh, no, I commissioned the map myself and then we put it in the book and I pay an artist to do it. I didn't realize people did that, right? I was expecting Pantera to do a map and everything. And then they go, it'd be lovely if we had a map. And I'm like, shit. And it's like two weeks. I mean, it wasn't two weeks. It's about a month, not very long before the, you know, the edits were supposed to be back in. And there's me going, how can I get a map in a month? It's too late to commission someone. The good artists are all booked out. Is there an app for that? So, of course, I just said, is there an app for, I'm literally Googling apps to make maps. And it comes up with Incarnate, which is a map making software that um, D&D people use, people who play Dungeons and Dragons and people who like to do world building for, for other various reasons. And it's absolutely amazing. But I didn't know the first thing about Incarnate. I was supposed to go on holiday with my family in Italy and I spent the whole time learning Incarnate. And I made those maps. (laughs) So I tell you what, I nearly killed myself doing it though, because I was, so they're all done online. And and honestly, when you compare them to other people's beautifully hand-drawn maps that they have in their fantasy books. I'm very impressed. There's no end to your talent. Well, I do, I do love, I do love graphics and I do love a software, a good software. You know, I'm a bit of a sucker for that. So the challenge was on, the glove, the gauntlet was thrown and I was like, "Mm, okay, let's see where we can go with this. But there was not enough time to do it and I nearly killed myself doing it. But anyway, next time I'm going to commission a beautiful artist to do it for me. (laughs) Joe, you are a writing teacher of many years standing. Mm. You've referred to your students throughout. I have been the beneficiary of your writing advice over many years, and you've done an incredible structural edit on my first novel. Your advice in that three pages of notes was so spot on and so good around pacing and all sorts of things. And I remember one of the things that you said about the process of grief is it's not so much about how many tears are shed and how much sobbing the character mm. does and what have you. It's about the notes left on the fridge mm. that the, the mother left behind or the, the hair clip. Yeah. In the it's sink. little yeah. things. They're the things that kind of punch you in the gut. They are. So I rate your advice. And if anyone gets a chance <laughs> to do a writing workshop with Joe at any point, do it. What has writing this series taught you about writing? Has it taught you anything new? Oh, absolutely. Every book teaches you something, but, you know, specifically changing genre and writing from a commercial market is priceless, I think, for a writer because you just, it's a synergistic sort of exercise Mm. because, you know, literary or more considered, I don't know how, I don't really like the word literary fiction because I think everybody's trying to write the best book they can regardless of, 
you know, whether it's literary or whether it's more commercial or it's genre or whatever, everybody's still trying to write a beautiful turn of phrase and fantastic characters who have depth and, you know, themes that are explored. So, you know, let's say slightly more commercial fiction. Um, it, it's it's to do with pace. It's to do with, um, you know, I, I, for me personally, because of the why I did it, because of having that failed literary novel and knowing that I needed to go and free myself by writing something fun, it, you know, it was just more fun. Mm. I could play more. And, you know, I was forgetting with my literary endeavours that, you know, that great, uh, Picasso quote about finding the child within. You know, you have to, art is about becoming a child again and playing and having fun and it shouldn't be, you know, like pulling blood from a stone. You know, it's it's it should be fun and something that you, um, but in the process, in, the, in, in terms of craft, I think it helps you to realise that shit needs to happen. You can't <laughs> just dwell inside characters' heads. It's boring. Um, as much as you love them and you know them inside out, unless you're the most skilled of writers Ian McEwen, inside the belly of a, mother, a pregnant woman, you know, like it's kind of, unless you're doing um, amazing stuff and, you know, breaking all the rules or whatever, I don't know. Um, I think you just, you just need to um, remember that things need to happen. Mm. I remember James Bradley saying to me when I was on the Faber Academy, I was stuck with the, with the Italians plot wise and he said, make someone die. <laughs> I think it was more subtle than that. I think it was more like, um, you know, there was a scene and uh, it was, a, it was a, an action scene. And he said, you're holding back. You need to just let it go all through what it needs to go through. So go, go fearward, you know, go towards the thing you don't want to write, which is going to be murder or death or something violent uh, in that particular instance. Yeah. Yeah, so um, sometimes I think we hold back on those things because we're trying to write a more literary novel, mm. you know. Yeah. What would you say is, with your writing students, what, what would you say is the big thing that a lot of them get wrong that you, you're sort of, the, the big piece of advice that you would give them? I think there's two things, and it really depends, often depends on what kind of uh, genre they're writing mm. in, but I think... With many writers, many emerging writers, they overwrite and they don't understand the value of a beautiful, simple sentence. One of my favourite quotes, um, I think it's Maya Angelou who said it, easy reading is damn hard writing. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of emerging writers tend to do is try to show that they're a good writer by you know, using poetic techniques, which we all learn when we're doing the HSC. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a there's a time and a place for all those beautiful poetic techniques. I love a good simile and a metaphor, and I love you know a good theme, and I love a good motif. But you have to scatter those thinly because otherwise it just becomes too. I'm I'm trying to show you my literary fireworks, uh, <laughs> and um, you know I think there's a time and a place, and sometimes the language they get caught up in the language rather than what's going on in the novel and things like theme and motif, they'll be focusing so much on, you know, the beautiful turn of phrase mm -hmm. to describe the nature setting or whatever. I think it comes with years of craft that you realise that a reader, you know, doesn't need to be spoon-fed, mm -hmm. that they will understand, they're, they're, they're smart. Mm -hmm. 
and sometimes they're smarter than you and they they don't need you to tell them every little thing like and that goes hand in hand with speech tags they they don't need to be told they can infer and they like it because that's the game of reading good literature is inference and um what's not being said as much as what is being said um so you know front loading that kind of thing saying too much up front about your world about your characters and also you know flashbacks too early on in the piece <laughs> you need to get to the action i think quicker i mean that's a generalization but i think in most cases when i read manuscripts and people have asked me to do manuscript assessment um that they they are front loading mm. and they they're putting too much information up front and it's for themselves it's not for the reader it's for them to know this is my character and they've had this terrible childhood and this is part of the world and this world has, you know, this warring parties or, you know, depending on what genre you're, you're writing. And I think that's for them to know rather than the reader doesn't really need to know that right then. What was the Elmore, Elmore Leonard? What did he say about try to try to skip the parts? Try, the to, yeah, <laughs> try to miss the parts the reader skip. Um, yeah, so. Joe, mm. thank you so much for today. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> you are off to another event. You are trying to write a new book. Life is yes. busy, love. Yes, and I should probably, I am allowed to say that we just got an international deal for the series. So The Rising and The Branded are going to be published in the UK and the US. Um, the Branded next year and The Rising in 2025. Oh, Joe, that's I cannot feign surprise. You already told me. I'm so excited, though. I send a lot of very happy emojis when you sent me that text. It was yeah, so, so exciting, so well deserved. I feel like this this series needs a broader world. It needs a television series or a movie. <laughs> I'm sure you've already cast that. I have in my mind. <laughs> That's so exciting. I yeah, thank you. Success, Joe. You've put in the hard yards over the years. Thank and you. And it's so delightful to be on that journey with you. Thanks, Michelle. It's been great chatting. There you go, fantasy writers. I hope you got a lot out of that. In fact, not just fantasy writers, but all writers. Joe has, I think, so much to offer. You can find Joe in all the places, starting with her website at joericcioni.com. So that's J O R I C I O N I.com. All the links, including where to buy The Branded and The Rising, are in the show notes, which you can access right here in whichever podcast app you're listening to this. Now to my final guest of the year. And like last year with Kate Forsyth and the year before with Marcus Suzak, I've chosen a writer with a number of books under her belt because I want to have a final, far-reaching conversation about writing with a career author. Joanna Nell author, doctor, friend, has written five wonderful books. They are the kind of novels that give you all the feels. Laugh out loud, funny one minute, heartwarming and poignant the next. Her latest novel, Mrs. Winterbottom Takes a Gap Year, is possibly her best yet. There were so many moments in this novel where I was breathless from laughter. She's absolutely brilliant. I loved it. My husband loved it. And judging by how well it's doing, all of you are loving it as well. If you have a question for Jo about her novels or writing process, please do send it in to me. You can send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook, or there's a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in with your question. I really love getting your questions and giving you a little shout out in the podcast. So send them in over the next couple of weeks and I'll include them in my interview with Jo. 
As always, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to Hachette. Entries are now open, so head over to Instagram or Facebook to enter. This is a fabulous book. You'll really want to take it on summer holidays with you. All you have to do is follow the podcast on socials and tag a friend and you'll be in the draw. You'll find us at Writers Book Club Pod on Instagram and Writers Book Club Podcast on Facebook. And while you're noodling around on socials, if you want to go into your podcast app, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and leave a rating or review, that would be amazing. I love getting them. They absolutely make my day. And apparently it's good for the algorithm and helps other people who are interested in writing to find the podcast. So you'd be doing them and me a huge favor. Thank you. As always, I'm recording this on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I look forward to catching up with you next month. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>